0: you'd like to turn with me to our text for this Lord's Day. We're going to be considering Mark chapter 9 verses 42 through 50. Shortly after the publication of William Tyndale's English New Testament, The attempt to restrict its circulation was defended by the Romish church. One Lord's Day, a Romish friar preached that Tyndale's English New Testament should not be circulated on the ground that uninformed Readers might understand the words of Christ literally wherein he commands the plucking out of an eye that offends. Thus, by putting scriptures into the hands of the ignorant, this friar contended that the whole kingdom would be filled with blind men if this particular version of the Bible of the New Testament were allowed to be circulated. Well, the following day, the English reformer Hugh Latimer preached in a sermon that simple people, enlightened by the Spirit of God, were able to distinguish between literal and figurative expressions in the Bible. For example, Latimer explained, if we paint a fox preaching in a friar's hood, nobody imagines that a literal fox is meant, but that craft and hypocrisy are described, which, is so, which so often are found disguised in that garb. No doubt he made his point very clear. By that particular illustration, today we come to a passage wherein we shall consider such figurative expressions as uttered by our Savior for our edification. Let us consider together the meaning of our Lord from Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50, wherein the main points are taken from this text as follows. First of all, be not stumbling blocks to Christ's little ones Mark nine forty two. Number two, be not stumbling blocks to your own selves Mark nine verses forty three through forty eight. And thirdly, be sacrifices to Christ, not stumbling blocks to others. Mark 9 verses
1: 49
0: through 50. Well, then our first main point: be not stumbling blocks to Christ's little ones. Read, follow along with me, if you will, as I read Mark 9:42. And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me. It is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he were cast into the sea. You'll recall that in Mark 9, verses 33 through 37, the Lord had rebuked the disciples for uh, their proud debate among themselves as to who was the greatest in the kingdom of God. And that same pride was evidenced in Mark 9, verse 38, when the apostle John spoke of the envy of the disciples in forbidding a gifted preacher from casting out demons in Christ's name. Why? Because he was not one of the twelve. Thus they were manifesting that they cherished that particular honor for themselves alone that they did not want to have to share that honor with anyone else. Now the Lord demonstrates, in Mark 9, verse 42, the nature of the sin that the apostles had committed against one another and against this gifted preacher whom they rebuked. Let us ask three questions and seeking to understand what the Lord teaches here in Mark 9, verse 42. First of all, what does it mean to offend? Does it simply mean to say or to do something that someone else doesn't like or appreciate? No, this cannot be the proper meaning of offend as used here. Otherwise, we would never be able to speak the truth or live a holy life before others. Because there are always going to be people who don't like what we have to say if we speak the truth or don't like the way in which we live as we live according to God's commandments. To offend properly understood means to hinder one's coming to Christ or one's growth in Christ by either our sin or our error, not by words of truth or acts of righteousness spoken or performed in humility. You see, to offend is to throw stumbling blocks in the path of others over which they trip, thus impeding their coming to Christ or growth in Christ. In fact, we take our English word scandalize from the Greek word that is used here, skandalizō. Again, I say one is not properly scandalized or offended if he stumb- stumbles over the truth. However, let us also be aware that we do not scandalize others by speaking the truth in pride rather than in love. The scripture says the Pharisees were offended by the words of Christ, although we can certainly say they should not have been offended by the words of Christ in Matthew 15.12. Again, those like the stony ground in Mark chapter 4, verse 17 are said to be offended when persecution comes their way for the cause of Christ. At that point, they are offended and fall away. Well, they should not have been offended and fallen away. If people are scandalized by the truth, it is not the messenger of the truth that has scandalized them but rather they have scandalized themselves. They have set stumbling blocks up themselves over which they have tripped and fallen, and primarily their own unbelief. As we seek to understand more about this matter of offense, scandal, the stumbling blocks... Paul tells us that sinful scandals or stumbling blocks may be given against three categories of persons. Against unbelieving Jews, against unbelieving Gentiles, and against Christians. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 32. Thus, it is not only Christians whom we may scandalize by hindering their growth in Jesus Christ, through our sin or through our error, but also non-Christians whom we may scandalize by hindering their coming to Christ through our sin or through our error. Another point about offenses, scandals, stumbling blocks is this. Sinful offense may be given either intentionally or unintentionally. You see, both are sin if we cause a scandal. But certainly and obviously an intentional stumbling block thrown in the path of a person is far more an aggravated sin than an unintentional scandal or stumbling block. A third truth about scandals, about stumbling blocks, is this. Sinful offense may not only be given by our our commission of what is unlawful, that is, by sin or error, but also may be given by our commission of what is lawful, but unnecessary, if it leads a brother to sin against his own weak conscience. For example... It is lawful, according to Scripture, to use wine as a social beverage. But if a fellow Christian has only seen the abuse of wine and accordingly believes it is wrong to use wine as a social beverage, we ought out of love to forgo our lawful use of wine in his presence, lest he be tempted to use it and sin at that present time against his own conscience. However, in matters that are necessary in doctrine, worship, government, discipline, or practice, we have no liberty to alter our words or change our behavior before others, lest we prove unfaithful to Christ himself. Dear ones, let us never so cling to our lawful liberty in things that are indifferent or unnecessary in such a way that by our words or deeds we unlawfully lead others away from the Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 14, verse 21, the Apostle Paul says, It is good neither to eat, Nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. For when we unnecessarily offend our brethren, there is we not only sin against our brother or our sister in so doing, but the Scripture says we as well sin against the Lord Jesus Christ which further aggravates that particular sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 12 says, But when ye sin so against the brethren, and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. When we unnecessarily offend others, dear ones, we do not display our liberty. I would argue at that point, we display our bondage to self-centeredness and to a lack of love for the brethren. Furthermore, I would also submit that when we unnecessarily offend our brethren, We act the part of the devil and join hands with him even if unwittingly in laying stumbling blocks before others to their growth in Christ. Those who stumble certainly are responsible for their stumbling, for their sinning, for their falling into sin, But if we lay a stumbling block before them, we aid and abet them in that particular fall into sin. And therefore, dear ones, unnecessary stumbling blocks can clearly be said to be satanic and devilish. Let us therefore, beloved, flee all such devices of the enemy and rather willingly lay down our life for the brethren, brethren until they are taught and learn not to be offended by that which is lawful. The second question to be answered concerning the words of Christ in Mark 9.42 is this. Who are the little ones to whom Christ here refers? Well, these are those who are represented... <clears throat> by the little child Christ held in his arm. In Mark 9.36, the little child represented there a true believer who in his act of faith turns from looking to himself as if he were self-sufficient to save himself and rather becomes like a little child in turning to Christ alone, embracing Christ in his all-sufficiency to grant him life and everything that he needs. You see, a child is not self-sufficient. A child depends upon the sufficiency of others. And so we must become independent and void of self-sufficiency and turn to he who alone is sufficient, the Lord Jesus Christ. These little ones are described in Mark 9.42 as those who believe in Christ. Thus, Christ specifically refers here in this verse to stumbling blocks that are placed before believers. And I would suggest even the weakest of believers. Even believers, perhaps, who try our patience the most... Even those we are to put up with, we are to help, we are to avoid offending all to the extent that we possibly can so as not to hinder their growth in the Lord Jesus Christ. The third question to be asked from Mark 9.42 is this. Is this truly a serious matter to the Lord? this whole matter of offending others. Well, if there is any doubt about the answer to this question, consider that the Lord here implies the judgment of God which one deserves for having willfully been the occasion of one falling into sin is so severe, so serious, that it would be better for such a one Who will not repent to have been cast into the sea with a millstone hung about his neck? You see, this was the form of punishment practiced by various nations at that time. It would be better for him to be thrown and drowned in the sea than the punishment that he justly deserves for having willfully offended one of Christ's little ones. Does this mean that one who is truly a Christian and who commits this sin willfully is warned that he may forfeit his salvation? Was this what Christ had in mind in warning his disciples? Well, I would submit absolutely not. Those who belong to Christ may in fact willfully commit this sin and certainly we may many times unintentionally commit this sin, but neither, whether willfully committed or unintentionally, will consign one who truly believes in Christ to hell. However, the Lord, I would submit to you, did intend to show us by this particular point the just penalty which our sin does rightly deserve. This is a heinous sin in the sight of God. We cannot take it lightly. The Lord would seek to impress that upon us. Such knowledge and conviction of this truth that has been spoken by the Lord should bring a Christian to seek Christ to seek his forgiveness when he realizes he has truly offended one of Christ's little ones and set a stumbling block before that one in leading them into sin. You see, it should in the life of a Christian bring him to mourn over the uh, the offense which he has sinfully committed against one of these little ones who believe in Christ. Furthermore, having sought Christ's forgiveness and having so mourned and grieved over his sin, he will then go to the offended brother and he will seek to be reconciled with him. Our second main point, not only does the Lord here command that we be not stumbling blocks to one another. But secondly, the Lord also issues to us this warning, be not stumbling blocks to your own selves. In Mark chapter 9, verses 43 through 48. Consider the words of the Lord Jesus here. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Amen. have no concern, dear ones, about scandalizing others, if we have no concern about scandalizing ourselves. However, if we are very, very cautious in not throwing up barriers and temptations to sin that would hinder ourselves in our growth in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will likewise, I would submit, be cautious in avoiding the same sin with regard to others. In Mark 9, verses 43-48, through 48, we find three times the Lord speaking of a member of our body offending us. The hand, in verse 43, the foot, in verse 45, and the eye, in verse 47. As was noted at the outset of the sermon, the Lord is not literally calling uh, uh, for us to amputate a hand or a foot, or to remove an eye that leads us into sin. A hand, a foot, and an eye are figures of speech which represent those things which are very dear and highly valuable to us in this life. Thus the Lord says, even if that which is dear and most precious in this life should continually lead us into sin, it is better to be without them in this life and enjoy the eternal glory in heaven than to be with them in this life and endure the eternal torment in hell. The Lord is again, dear ones, calling the Christian... To take up his cross, deny himself, and follow Christ. He is calling the Christian to see that there is nothing in this life that is as dear and precious to him as Jesus Christ himself is. For Jesus Christ, dear ones, is our life. Jesus Christ is our righteousness. He is our wisdom our hope, our peace, our strength, our confidence, and our contentment. And even if it should seem to us that we must give up everything in this life in order to follow Christ, that we must even give up life itself to become a martyr for the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord says, it is worth it. There is nothing that can compare to heaven. Dear ones, Christ is not calling us here to quit working if we have made an idol of our job. He is not calling us to leave our family if we have loved our family more than we have loved Christ. He is not calling us to give up all of our money to give to the poor if we have placed our confidence in that money rather than placing our confidence in Christ. However, what this text does plainly command us to do is to cut off all immoderate and excessive love for the people and things of this life which lead us to fall away from Christ. Thus the love of the things of this world which lead us to compromise what is true and what is right ought to be to be cut off and amputated from our lives. Dear ones, when our love for peace and the applause of others would lead us to join with family in the celebration of Christmas, when we know that it is wrong, or would lead us to attend the services of ministers who teach contrary to sound doctrine when we know it is wrong. We must cut off that immoderate and excessive love for peace and that excessive love and immoderation for the applause of others. Dear ones, when what we look at in magazines books, the television, movies, the internet leads us to lust. We must cut off that lust by denying our access to that which is immoral. We can't play around with it. We have to cut it off. To cut it off as much as we are able... For it prevents us and keeps us from growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the Lord here uses very graphic terms to describe the pain that will be involved as we separate ourselves from that which offends us and leads us away from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like an amputation of the hand or the foot or like the removal of... Of the eye. And remember that when this was spoken, anesthesia and surgical methods were quite crude in comparison to what we now know. You can imagine the pain in cutting off a hand or a foot or removing an eye in that day and age. Thus, even as the figure of speech is painful, how much more painful. I would submit to you, it will be to cut off all those besetting sins, those cherished secret sins that no one else knows about in our lives. But we must be that serious. We must be willing to cut it off, to amputate it, to suffer as it were the pain necessary. It will be like a knife cutting through flesh and bone for old sinful habits will not die easily we will struggle we will fall as we struggle we will then arise and we will repent and we will seek the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ and then it will seem the cycle may begin all over again but dear ones we continue the cycle We continue to go through the process. We continue to war and fight the good fight of faith because the Lord will sustain us. And He assures us that the battle is not ours ultimately, but the battle is His. And He will overcome all of those sinful weaknesses and besetting sins in our life. But we must continue to cut, to cut, to cut, to remove, to remove, to remove, to mortify the deeds of the flesh. You can be absolutely assured of this, dear ones, that His grace will prove more than sufficient. You will never withdraw so much grace that there will not be enough grace to overcome that besetting sin in your life or to restore you back into communion with the Lord Jesus Christ having fallen. He'll never push you away and say you're unworthy to come to me. We know that anyway, but it's not our worthiness, but it is the worthiness of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom we appeal. Dear ones, it is a precious truth that his mercy will never, ever end. And because he has conquered, we will overcome. And we will not despair. And that in and of itself, the fact that we will not despair, is a victory in and of itself. We will not despair. We may fall. We may get discouraged. But we will not despair. Because the Lord will not allow us to despair. That's because it is entirely by His grace that we stand. What kinds of besetting sins must we mortify by the grace of God? I only have time to mention them without going into a whole lot of discussion concerning them, but I'm sure that each of us can identify these types of sins that need to be mortified, that need to be cut off. Those sins which we cherish and nurse in our own lives. Pride, self-centeredness, envy, rivalry, comparing ourselves with others, trusting in ourselves, in our own graces, in our own gifts, or in the graces or gifts of others. Contentious spirit, sinful anger, loving the applause of men more than we love the applause of God lust, unbelief, worry, fear, discontentment, the immoderate and excessive love of family, friends, money, jobs, houses, and the pleasures of this life. We are truly honest and we search our hearts and we pray, Lord, search our hearts, know us, try us, we will see. In all of our lives, how we cherish such sins. But the Lord says, cut them out. Let me suggest to you, dear ones, the following means of grace that might be used in this process of amputating these besetting sins and cutting them off. The Word of God, obviously, the Scriptures. It is the word of God which is like an antiseptic which cleanses us, which purifies us in our minds, which gives to us knowledge of the grace of God, the admonitions and encouragements to come to Christ to overcome these sins, to see that we can't in our own strength do so. We find this in the word of God, not only the rule of righteousness that we're to do it, but also the promise through Christ that He has already accomplished it in principle. He has already purchased for us victory. So therefore, let us come to Him confidently trusting in Him. Next, prayer. Obviously. Communing with Christ. Calling upon the Lord continuously for those particular sins to be cut off from our lives, to do so sincerely, fervently. Not to do so casually as if it doesn't really matter. Just do so from the bottom of our heart. The use of the sacraments, baptism, the Lord's Supper, reflecting upon what our baptism means, what the Lord's Supper means. Fasting. By so doing, in all of these ways, we're not trying to, again, earn, as it were, brownie points and saying, Lord, well, I've done this, now you've got to do that. This is not what we're talking about at all. These are all means by which we avail ourselves of God's mercy and grace, by which the the channel, as it were, from, from, from God to man, through which His grace flows, See, in fasting, we humble ourselves before the Lord and we say, in effect, our own hunger reminds us how we are so insufficient in ourselves to overcome even these particular problems of physical hunger, how much more so other types of problems that we may have in overcoming sins. We humble ourselves and the Lord so often is so merciful and gracious in helping us at those times. We can also use and avail ourselves of vows to God, covenants that we make with the Lord, lawful covenants that we will endeavor to overcome this particular sin in our lives by God's grace, appealing to to His help, His strength, to assist us and help us in overcoming these particular sins. I would suggest another means of grace is simply a heart of thankfulness. Focusing upon all that you have to be thankful to the Lord is again a way of, of preventing us from falling into particular sins. For as our heart is focused in thanking and praising the Lord, we find we don't have time to be thinking about these particular sins because we're filled with a knowledge of Christ and the desire to please Him and to be thankful. <clears throat> Another means of grace I would suggest is fellowship with fellow Christians who are coming to meetings and they too are coming to meetings without hands and feet and eyes because they're going through the same process you're going through. And they can encourage you that the Lord has helped them to be willing to go without hands and feet and eyes and he will be a help and a strength to you through your particular struggle as well and finally one last thing that I would mention is a means of grace I mentioned this I think a few weeks ago in a sermon but every temptation that comes your way a temptation to fall into a besetting sin that you're seeking to overcome, by God's grace, say, I'm going to turn that temptation around and every time that temptation comes, I'm going to use it as an opportunity to turn my attention, my faith, toward the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, the wisdom of Christ, the faithfulness of Christ, the love and the righteousness of Christ. And so, how many times are you going to be thinking about these things about Christ as often as you're tempted? Because you're going to turn that around into something powerful rather than being overcome by that temptation. The Lord here draws a contrast between the reward of the believer who evidences his faith by taking up his cross, denying himself and following Christ, and the penalty, the punishment of the unbeliever who evidences his unbelief by choosing the besetting sins of this life over Christ and choosing rather to live in those besetting sins rather than to follow Christ. You remember what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 26. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? See, the believer recognizes that faith has a natural outgrowth and fruit that faith will manifest itself in the life of a Christian. And the natural outgrowth and fruit of faith is to seek to put to death the deeds of the flesh, those besetting sins. Not perfectly, but he continues to strive. He continues to war against the flesh. No matter how many times he fails and falls, he continues to do so trusting all the time in the grace of the Lord and seeking to remove the opportunities for temptation from his sight removing himself and if he can removing those particular occasions of sin from before him. dear ones remember there are no regrets in heaven there's no one who's in heaven saying I I regret, having lived for the Lord I regret even having died for the Lord there are no regrets in heaven but hell is filled with regrets hell is filled with regretful people in fact it is the hope of heaven that blessed reward which the Lord has laid up for those who believe and trust in him that sweetens all the crosses of this life. As we cast our eyes upon our Savior and all that he's prepared for us, it sweetens everything that we must pass through here upon the earth. And therefore, we ought to reflect very often upon these inevitable divine appointments with death. We ought to think about death because it is again a means as we reflect upon these times, and these things, these appointments that we can't avoid that the Lord will use to help us to see what is truly important in this life. What really matters in this life? Because all these other things won't count. They won't mean anything to us as we are lying at the threshold of death. What will matter is our faith And confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ—that's what will count. Hell, in this particular passage, is 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 described here by way of a fire that is never quenched, and by way of a worm that never ceases to consume the body. These words graphically portray the awful torment. And the corruption that will fall to those who do not take hold of Christ alone for their eternal salvation and therefore do not evidence true faith by putting to death the deeds of the flesh or the cutting off of the sins in this life through the means of grace that have just been mentioned. Let me ask you, wherein does the misery of hell consist? Well, first of all, it consists in the everlasting loss of all things that make one truly happy. The loss of all things that make one truly happy. The loss of Christ. The loss of fellowship with the saints. And the loss of all heavenly joys and blessings. Secondly, hell consists in the sensible feeling and apprehension of the everlasting wrath of God in both body and soul. I want you to think with me for just a moment, dear ones. There will never be any ease, interruption, or intermission from this torment in body and in mind not even a drop of water as an intermission, as an alteration of that intense torment, according to Luke 16.24. Utter hopelessness, total despair, will forever crush those in hell without any possibility of relief the only company those in hell will have will be with the devil, the demons, and the damned who will hate and despise all those that are there with the utmost degree of hatred. There will be nothing in hell, dear ones, to temper and, or to moderate the condemning conscience of man Nothing to moderate it. There will not be the forgetfulness of sin to moderate it. No blame shifting to moderate it. No callousness to moderate it. No death, no sleep, no escape whatsoever. And the fuel which will make this suffering so unbearable will be the knowledge that many of them had the gospel of salvation preached to them. But they ignored it. They neglected it. And they did not receive it by faith. Is the fear of hell as a motive to obedience consistent with saving faith and useful to the believer? I would suggest to you that it is not. Fear of going to hell is inconsistent with saving faith and not a proper motive in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. For a believer in Christ has passed out of judgment, out of condemnation and into life. The infinite justice of God as judge has once and for all been satisfied by Christ who is the believer's righteousness. God is now the believer's Father who only and always chastens Him for His good. Certainly the wrath of God displayed in paying the penalty of under the covenant of works may be used by us to see what our sins actually deserve and that can be useful because we'll appreciate all the more the grace and the mercy of the Lord the more we understand what our sins deserve. But it is not a motive to our obedience in Christ for we Believe we have escaped the pains and the torments of hell forever. We are not to fear God with a slavish fear as our judge. We are to fear God as a father. He is our father, and we have a childlike fear and reverence for God as our father, and not a slavish fear of God as our judge any longer. last point I make very, very quickly, the third and final point, is this. We are not to be stumbling blocks to others. We are not to be stumbling blocks to ourselves. But thirdly, we rather are to be sacrifices to Christ and not stumbling blocks to one another. Look what the Lord says. In Mark 9, verses 49 and 50. For everyone shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt hath lost his saltness, wherewith will ye season it? Have salt in yourselves, and have peace one with another. There are probably not too many passages of Scripture that are as difficult to interpret and amongst whom you'll find many, many uh, different views with regard to a passage as these two particular verses that I've just read. Nevertheless, uh, I will attempt to, to give to you what I believe the Word of God is teaching at this particular point especially in light of the context. Here I would suggest to you that the Lord changes the imagery from the fires of hell, which he has just alluded to, to the fires of sacrificial offerings. For we see... In verse 49, for everyone shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. This goes back to Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13, where offerings which were made, sacrifices which were made to God, were to be salted before they were all offered to the Lord. Therefore, I would suggest to you the words there for everyone, or literally for all, refers to all Christians, all believers. Because this was, again, an offering that was made to the Lord in Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13. This is not speaking, I would suggest to you, that this is not speaking of all indiscriminately throughout the world, but this is speaking particularly of believers in Jesus Christ. That all of them shall be salted with fire, all of them shall be salted with salt. Here in verse 49, those little ones... Remember the little ones we talked about earlier who believe in Christ? Who are called not to be stumbling blocks to others or to themselves. Here are rather called to offer themselves as living sacrifices to Christ and to be used as sacrifices to glorify Christ and to serve others, to offer their lives as sacrifices. Salt here, I would suggest to you, was added to the sacrifices as a picture of the antiseptic, cleansing work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a figure that was added to speak of the fact that Christ cleanses His sacrifice cleanses from all sin. And so we are called to remember His sacrifice for us as we offer our lives to Him. In other words, we do not perform some work by which we are saved. We are simply responding out of love because He has offered His life as a sacrifice to cleanse us. We, in turn, offer our lives to him, remembering his antiseptic work, his cleansing work on our behalf. And so the attention then is turned from stumbling blocks to sacrifices. Sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving, sacrifices, living sacrifices, even as we find in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And so rather than looking for ways to cause stumbling blocks, the Lord calls us to look for ways in which we can continue to be a burnt offering, a living sacrifice to the Lord and offering our all to Him and serving Him in every way we possibly can. And in verse 50, in conclusion, there, the, the, the Scripture says, Jesus says, Salt is good, because it's, again, taken in this antiseptic sense, in this cleansing sense. Salt is good. But if the salt have lost its saltness, wherewith will ye season it? In other words, I would suggest to you at this particular point that the, that the shift here, as you see, have salt in yourselves. The Lord is speaking to the apostles as ministers of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in Matthew chapter 5, speaking to the disciples, he says that ye are the salt of the earth. Ministers are commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ to be the salt of the earth as they apply through the preaching of the word the antiseptic cleansing the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ to the lives of people and bringing them to Christ through the preaching of the Word and in sanctification as they hear and apply the preaching of the Word. And so therefore, ministers who lose their saltness, who lose that, that thrust of the gospel in their own lives, who lose the thrust of the gospel in their preaching, that Christ does not have a place in the preaching of the Word of God. They have lost their saltness. They have lost their, that antiseptic power. And they are basically then bringing people under a covenant of works and not under the covenant of grace. But they are not preaching The antiseptic power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to cleanse from sin. The power of the gospel has lost effectiveness in their own life first. And therefore, how often we as ministers and as elders, how often we must contemplate the power of the gospel, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Because we have nothing to tell people. If we can't tell people about the sufficiency of Christ, the effectiveness and the power of Christ, we have nothing at all to tell people but that they're lost, they're condemned sinners. There is no hope without Jesus Christ. And I would submit to you that from that flows the last admonition have peace with one another. It is only on the basis of Christ who is our peace, Christ who is our reconciliation, that we can have peace with one another, which takes us back to, again, how to deal with the pride and the envy, which was evident in the life of the apostles, which led to those particular sins, which were offenses. They didn't understand In Mark 9.31, which immediately precedes these two examples of pride and envy, they didn't understand what Christ was saying about him going to the cross. And they're not understanding of the power of Christ's death and his resurrection will inevitably lead to a powerless Christian life if we do not understand and apply the truth of the gospel of Christ in our lives we will be led into offending others and ourselves continuously therefore the Lord says here to ministers in particular you must be faithful in your saltness in preaching faithfully the gospel of Christ so that people can be at peace with one another because it is only through, again, the work of the Spirit applying the work of Christ that we can have peace one with another. Please stand with me in prayer. Our gracious Father, we do thank Thee this day that thou hast taught us again from thy word concerning our Savior. Thou hast opened our eyes to the gospel of Christ, to the wisdom of that gospel, to the righteousness of that gospel, to the sufficiency of that gospel, to the power of that gospel. We ask thee, O Lord our God, that Thou would cause those who are here today to hear the gospel that is preached, that Jesus Christ offers Himself a sufficient Savior for the entire world, that all those who hear the message of the gospel of salvation are invited to come, that none will be able, O Lord, to say, In that final day of judgment who heard the gospel that they had no warrant to believe for all are invited to come. The gospel goes out to all to come to the sufficient Savior who alone can forgive, who alone can grant eternal life. We ask, O Father, that none of us nor our children would be like those whom we spoke earlier whose conscience will be eternally tormented in hell because they neglected, because they ignored the call of the gospel, the invitation of the gospel. We pray, Father, that Thou would would give to us, therefore, hearts that are ready to hear and to obey a love for the truth, a desire to cut off Lord, those sinful members that yet remain, those besetting sins, cause us to cherish, O oh Lord, the glories that are laid up for us in heaven more than anything that we have here upon the earth. Lord, we pray these things. We thank Thee that Thou hast delivered us from the condemnation, the judgment to come through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and through His His sacrifice, and bearing that punishment on our behalf. We ask, Lord, that Thou would cause us to apply these truths this day to our lives, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
2: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need.